Mark My Words shares Mark Homer's contrarian views on investing, business, finance, economics, and all things money. Mark interviews the world's most successful business, finance, and money experts, as well as imparting his knowledge in a factual, direct, and no-nonsense manner. Welcome to Mark My Words, and here is your host, Mark Homer. Hello, Mark Homer here, and welcome to Mark My Words. I've got Dean Brown here, who has loads of experience in finance. Dean used to work for a big bank. He's been involved in development funding, uh, commercial term funding. Uh, He's been around property for years. Um, Dean, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Mark, and uh, thank you very much for having me here. It's a pleasure to be able to speak to you and uh, you know, have a chat generally about the market, etc. Great. So, Dean, um, I know you know we've we've sort of dealt with each other in, in in terms of loans and getting finance before on on development type projects, bigger development type projects. Do you want to just t- tell everybody what it is you do exactly? Um, well, I'm the managing director of Orion Finance, which is effectively a corporate finance broker. Uh, we focus predominantly on property and get involved in both development, investment and equity that's required for that. Um, we also have key partners that cover other asset classes and other requirements. So we have a, a mortgage partner that can provide uh, advice on personal, limited company, buy-to-lets, etc. We have a business finance arm. They help out with asset finance, invoice discounting, cash flow, etc. Got a wealth manager that can help out with personal advice, pensions, et al. And then we've got an insurance partner that helps out with general insurance requirements, um, buildings insurance, new build warranties and latent defects policies. So in essence, we've got a team that can cover all requirements, whether it's finance or insurance related. Okay, and I know, you know, when when you and I talk, um, most of the time I'm talking to you about sort of raising money for developments. Um, and what I found you, you, you tend to, you, you have access to a number of development funders. Um, and you go away, you get me a quote uh, or a set of quotes, five, six, seven for whatever I'm looking at. And you summarise them all. You know, I get them all sort of on a sheet um, and it just saves me sort of a hell of a lot of time. Um, I, I've in the past, certainly with commercial term funding, um, I've used brokers less and less and, and got relationships sort of stronger with banks. But certainly um, in, in, after meeting you in recent times, um, especially on the development funding, I can see big benefit in using your service. Um, so, you know, I, I'm, we sort of do this, this, this interview off the back of um, me having great experiences with, with what you do. Um, so how is the market for money right now? What, what, what is happening in the market? Well, it's, it's quite an interesting market at the moment. Um, in terms of money, there's a whole range and variety of lenders out there. Um, they are willing to lend at different levels of risk and gearing. Um, there's a huge amount of competition in both the bridging and the development space, which is good news for borrowers because it's pushing down margins in terms of interest rates and fees that are related to that. And there's an element there where um, there's such a wide choice that sometimes it's not easy to know which ones are the good ones to go to. And that's where we come in and help out. 
there is an element of caution in the market at the moment in terms of uh, valuations um, and valuers are being a bit uh, cautious about Brexit and uh, some of the slowdown uh, or perceived slowdown in the market. Um, but generally speaking, there's lots of lenders out there, lots of money available. And uh, if you've got a requirement, then usually you can find a home for it. So the kind of banks that you're dealing with, um, by and large, for development funding and for bridging funding, they're not always the main clearing banks. Is that right? And sort of what sort of banks are they? Since 2008, when the recession hit, a lot of the mainstream clearing banks came back from the market. They didn't really want to lend. Um, they were being very cautious um, and they had a lot of problems on their books. Um, what happened was the FCA put restrictions on them in terms of the capital adequacy requirements. So they needed to set aside a lot of money for every pound that they lent on development and the perceived more risky uh, development finance. So what happened was, is it opened the door to a lot of the challenger banks and a lot of alternative lenders who came into the market, typically backed by big investment companies. And they basically came into the market, set up specialist teams in development finance and bridging finance. And that's provided a really good opportunity for SMEs and other builders to still be able to borrow and in most cases, be able to borrow more than the clearing banks can offer them. To put it into context, context um, most clearing banks offer a maximum of 60% of cost or 50% of GDV, whereas a lot of the alternative lenders or challenger banks are quite happy lending 80 or 90% of cost, equating to 65 to 75% of GDV. So that means that developers are able to do two sites rather than the one that they might be able to do if they were going for a clearing bank. And that's why a lot of the uh, specialist development lenders are doing a lot of business. So what you're saying is effectively that they're probably lending about 20% more of the cost of the development, these types of banks. Um, yeah. And therefore developers are able to sort of make their money go further and, and go twice, basically achieve more leverage on their development. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, if you put it into context, the clearing banks, the few that are still lending on development are typically in and around five to five and a half percent interest rates. When you go up a notch to, you know, the 60 or 65 percent of GDV, which means that you, you're only putting in 20 percent rather than 40 percent of cost, the, the cost for that is typically in and around 7% per annum. So it's not much more expensive, but it means you're putting in half the equity. And that then, as an opportunity cost, means that you're able to go and invest in another development and not pay too much more for the finance. Okay, so I guess there's a, a, you know, an extra cost. I mean, you deal with the big clearing banks as well. Just give us an idea, if you were sort of borrowing the smallest amount or, or the lowest tier, uh, maybe from a clearing bank or whoever. What, what's the rough cost of that? What's the rough cost when you go up to the sort of 80% of cost? Um, ju just give us some, some broad brush ideas of, of how that moves. Well, most of the clearing banks, uh, they're typically in and around 5 to 5.5% 5 .5 interest rates. Their arrangement and exit fees are typically around about 1% in and 1% out of the loan. 
So your all-in costs are around 7% if you took it on an annualised basis. If you went to, uh, say, 60% of GDV rather than 50% of GDV, you're in the next tier, and that would typically cost you 6 to 7% interest and around about 1% to 1.25% in and out. So not much of an increase. There's another notch at 65% of GDV, which means that you are probably in and around about 7 to 7.5% 7 interest. What do you call, you, you have names for all this. Is that stretch senior? Is that what you call it? Yeah, I would say probably when you get into about 65% of yeah. GDV yeah. to 70% of GDV, that you're in the stretch senior space. And that yeah. basically means you're borrowing all the money from one lender. Yeah. Whereas in the past, the you'd charge. probably go senior and mezzanine to get you to those levels. Yeah, it's got to be simpler, hasn't it? Going to one lender who just does that sort of tier above yeah absolutely um, is so so the the tier up to what 55 percent of gdv uh and maybe what 60 70 percent of cost might be senior lending yes and, and then the bit above that is sort of stretch senior yeah i yeah. agree with that yeah. yeah definitely um and do you, do you do you sort of go beyond that sometimes into mezzanine and then i don't know maybe work with private equity as well yeah absolutely it's something that we specialize in at orium um if you look at uh, pairing some mezzanine with the lower cost senior debt, you can put that up to maybe 90% of costs and 75% yeah. of GDP. And sometimes that's enough for a borrower, you know, to put in only 10% of costs. It's reasonable. They get control on it and they can manage it and get all of the profit themselves. If they don't quite have that amount, you know, what we typically do is, is take it up to, say, 80% of cost as a maximum, and then we'll go and source equity from a range of providers. And they typically come from high net worth individuals, um, family offices, or much larger funds and institutions. And that depends really on the size of the deal as to who you would approach. Okay. So if you were going to source term finance, which is obviously different from commercial, you know, sorry, different from development finance. So, so what we're talking about now is a, is a long term investment loan or sometimes called commercial finance or, or term finance. Um, this is once the development is complete and maybe you're going to run it as a PRS, a, a, pri uh, a private rental scheme, um, sorry, a private rented sector. Um, type investment where you've got, say, flats uh, generating rental income. Um, what sort of terms can you sort of obtain with that? That's that's sort of the first part of the question. And the second part is I understand there are sort of some quite big institutions that offer this sort of funding um, that are probably more based around um, the, the, the revenue stream in terms of the valuation uh, on a property like that. Um, so they're, they're specific sort of PRS type lenders. Um, do, you, do, you, do, you, do you operate in that space or, or not? Yeah, we can do. I think from the point of view of um, standard investment finance, there's, there's a wide range of lenders out there that are becoming quite competitive on their rates. Um, the level of gearing and the costs involved invariably come down to the loan to value and the loan to value is driven by the income. So if you've got a high yielding uh, property 
um, and you're getting a very good income in terms of rental, then you can borrow a little bit more. Um, or you can choose to keep it at lower levels of loan to value and you can get some very competitive rates down in the sort of the 3% level I'd say when what, it comes what sort of LTV would be around the three percent level um, probably 60 to 70 yeah, percent LTV on, on residential yeah, yeah we're doing a few at the moment which are up at 75 percent yeah they're in and around 3.79 percent yeah so it's still quite a competitive rate um, and that's on a, an HMO so it's a very high yielding property yeah um, and the client could borrow more if they wanted to but yeah. they're happy at that level and yeah. they're getting a very good rate for it yeah okay so um you're you, in that space you're dealing mainly with um sort of bank debt i guess rather than i don't know institutions maybe taking an equity slice or or you know some other blended way of dealing with it in terms of yeah, PRS it's, hold. it's mainstream banks, bank it's um, challenger banks, yeah. um, they're the ones that are focused on that sort of sector. Yeah. Going to your second part of your question in terms of the PRS sector, yeah. um, you know, there are a number of pension funds and large institutions that are very keen on PRS. They want to invest in that sector. So the larger scale developments, typically over 100, 150 units as a minimum, they will actually look to buy them from developers at the end or they will forward fund the development of those. But obviously from a developer point of view, your ultimate position there is you're going to sell out. They don't typically joint venture once they get into the long-term long hold stage. So um, this is where it's quite helpful from a developer point of view where you can get quite cheap forms of funding to help the development and a guaranteed exit at the end. But if you're talking about a longer term hold, <clears throat> there are a number of pension providers and big institutions that are also willing to provide you know, quite uh, reasonable rates in terms of uh, investment loans. Hmm, that's quite interesting. So what, what sort of terms would those guys operate on in terms of their investment loans? Uh, a lot of it comes down to the profile of the yeah. scheme, the size, the income, etc. So it's quite hard to pinpoint. But yeah. you know, typically you can get rates in between sort of two and five yeah. percent, depending, as I say, predominantly on the, the the risk profile and the gearing and and the income cover. Great. So. Um, something I, a question I get constantly uh, from mentees, people on you know our trainings, people emailing in, they, they ask me all sorts of stuff. But the, the one thing I get all the time is, Mark, can I borrow all of the money for my project and not put any money in? Well, I hear that question a lot too. So <laughs> <laughs> maybe it's from the same people. But um, the answer, the short answer is yes, you can, which is obviously really good news. Um, it's not always easy. So what I say to people is, you know, it's about putting together a really good presentation on the scheme, um, finding a good opportunity and having the, uh, the team around you and the track records to give any potential investors, you know, the comfort that you're going to be able to deliver. Um, the equity funders that are out there that are willing to put the money in, whether that be the whole of the money or the, the equity slice, behind the bank, they're at the very top end of the risk curve. So they want good, credible partners. 
Um, but in essence, yes, you can get 100% finance and we've done it on quite a number of schemes for people where we've been able to get all the way up to 100% of cost. So those guys are effectively, they're going in with an equity slice, I suppose, some of these parties. So they're taking a share in the development? Yes, yeah, usually, yeah. Generally what happens? A lot of the time it breaks back to 50-50 profit share overall. That's yeah. kind of the target where we aim to get to. Um, you know, it depends on where the money's coming from as to what the structure is behind that. Yeah. Um, what we typically find is, you know, if it's a high net worth investor, um, they're quite simple and, and very happy to just do a straightforward profit share yeah. um, or even just a coupon on their money. Um, when you get into family offices and funds, etc., they've got investors that they need to protect and they've got certain requirements that need to be met in terms of return. So they tend to have certain hurdles, they're called, which um, each deal needs to get over before the developer starts to get their money. So what you find is they have a preferred return or a priority share on the profit, um, sometimes called a coupon. Um, thereafter, they're looking at the IRR, um, and then they're looking at you know what's the overall return on their capital. So there's lots of different things to get over. So IRR, um, internal rate of return? Yes, yeah, so yeah. they're looking at what is the return on their money over the life of the project. And, and IRR is generally on an annualised basis? Well, it's not as straightforward as per annum, yeah. but um, it's quite a difficult one to explain. Yeah. But um, it's basically looking at the funds the day they go out yeah. and when they, re they get returned, what yeah. is the overall return on that? Yeah. Um, there's a very complicated formula behind it and far too difficult for me to explain on a, a yeah. quick interview. If, if I'm honest, I always, um, you know, I often get these IRR figures back when I'm, you know, offering a project or I'm involved in one or, or something like that. And I, I find them quite hard to complicate, some, uh, sorry, uh, to um, calculate sometimes. But I mean, I sort of have my own IRR um, calculation, which I, it's usually cash on cash return on an annual basis. Um, and that's what I, that's my own sort of version of IRR, which I use for myself. How much am I making on an annual basis on the cash I've got invested? I think most people look at what is the annualised return, yeah. but the overall return is important as well. Yeah. So, you know, if it's a two year project, you know, sometimes they, they steer away from IRR and maybe look at overall return on their cash investment. Yeah. You know, some equity providers want to get one and a half times their equity back, for example. Yeah. Um, so you, you have to hit a priority share, you have to hit an IRR calculation, and then you have to hit the minimum return on their capital. So there's lots of different hurdles. But on a, on a normal scheme where, you know, you're 20% return on cost and, you know, it's a decent scheme which should sell quite quickly, then typically it all breaks back to about 50-50 overall. I've got my project and, you know, we, you, 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 I give it to you. We've got planning permission. What terms am I normally going to be offered on a scheme? I know that's a pretty generic question, but we've spoken about the, the loan to value. So, you know, percentage of cost, percentage of GDV. What other sort of terms do I need to hit or, or am I going to be offered to make the loan work? Well, most lenders are looking for a return, a minimum return on the project overall of 20% return on costs. Um, some look at that as, as post-finance as well. So they're looking for a decent return on the project. And um, it, 
the actual cost of the finance comes down to what you're looking to borrow. So the first question I always ask people is, what do you need? How much equity have you got to put into this project? And then we can steer it towards the right lenders in the right bracket of cost. We'll always aim for the cheaper ones in that bracket. And then, you know, as we go through those, if we're not getting the, the right response, then we'll look at others. Um, invariably, I think if you look to deal... I would always recommend people to be aiming between 60 and 65% of GDV. That's the most competitive space at the moment in terms of lenders. And you would usually find rates between six and seven to seven and a quarter percent. So that's the, probably the sweet spot in terms of how much it's costing you versus how much you have to put into the deals. Okay. And, you know, if we sort of uh, don't have a load of experience, someone comes to me, they're relatively new. Um, how do you sort of filter, you know, whether they've got enough track record for the size of the deal and the type of the deal? You know, is there a relationship or, or will, will the banks just lend sort of any amount to someone who's not done a deal before? Um, well, from my background, I used to be a lender for 20 years and the last 10 years was in development finance. So often I can't help myself but underwrite a scheme as it lands on my desk and I'll look at things like Why costs, etc. Yeah. We want to make sure that we're presenting the right deals to the right lenders. Um, and when something comes across my desk where they don't quite have the required level of experience or perhaps it's a big jump in terms of the size of the deal, Sometimes we'll recommend to them that a better route would be to do a joint venture. Um, you know, there are always funders out there that will be willing to fund people with less experience, but you will pay a lot for that because they're pricing for risk. And sometimes that cost could be a lot to bear within the project. And there's a lot to be said for, you know, creating a partnership with a slightly more experienced developer because number one, you'll get better terms from lenders. Number two, they'll probably have maybe a bit of equity to put into it. But also number three, as you go through that project, you will learn from them both, you know, in terms of the construction, uh, the processes, etc. of maybe doing those larger deals than perhaps you used to. And that in itself can be invaluable for the next project. Yeah, I know when um, I'm looking to, to do a project and if I'm sort of, you know, funds are committed to other projects, but I've got another building, um, I can often go and find somebody who's got cash um, and um, they might not have done buildings of the type or size that we're, we're doing before. Um, I know I can get good terms from lenders, so often they put their cash in. You know, we, we do the project, they get most, if not all, of their money back at the end um, and then we hold the building, you know, together, sort of post-development works. That, that works quite well because... They get my experience, they get to learn, and they get sort of better terms with lenders. Um, and then that sort of moves them on in the future to be able to go and do projects themselves. Yeah, makes um, a lot of sense. Yeah. And, and a lot of our clients have done that in the past. Yeah. And they've gone on to then start developing their own projects. Number one, they've created profits in those JVs, but also they've then got the experience to go out to lenders on their own. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. And, and actually, I, I used to... I used to be concerned about bringing other people in um, to lender relationships, um, but uh, most of them aren't bothered as long as you're sort of there and you're the experienced one um, and they can deal with you. They don't mind other shareholders there. It's, it's quite different from buy-to-let. Um, you, you set up a limited company. That's what I normally do. We have different shareholders. 
um, just have a shareholders agreement. Um, as long as you're sort of transparent about all that with the lender, most of them sort of happy with that, are they? Yeah, I would say that they actually prefer it if they are a shareholder in yeah. the SPV um, because it's you know showing that they've got commitment into the deal and their equity is going in as you know a pure equity contribution rather than a second charge or a loan, which you know they they might have to get into discussion with if the project starts to go wrong. So they much prefer it if your JV partners are shareholders. Oh, that's quite interesting. So they'd prefer the JV partners not to have a charge but for them to be to, to, to be there on an equity basis no charge no not a loan basis uh, but to have a share in the in the, in the project yeah, yeah I think they they're happy if it goes in as a director's loan yeah and it has to be fully subordinated yeah. but they prefer that to a, a full second charge loan and to be honest if you go to a senior debt provider and you, you talk to them about the fact that there is a second charge loan required, then not only is there a deed of subordination required, but also they start to question, well, how much is the actual developer putting into this? Yeah. Whereas if you're both shareholders and the equity is going into the SPV limited company, then they're kind of ambivalent as to how much is going in from each party as long as yeah. you're both putting something in. It's a good, it's a good way to structure these and, and, and get them rolling. Haven't tried it, but um, and there's there's probably issues around making sure they're all sophisticated and high net worth. Um, have you ever done a deal where there's more than let's say two main parties? I don't know. There's five or ten shareholders. I mean, I from a personal point of view, I probably wouldn't want to do it because I wouldn't want all the trying to get decisions out of them all. Um, um, but what what do lenders think about that? I think they're okay with it up to you know a certain number. I think yeah. if you've got three, four, maybe even five yeah. you know, main parties within the business, yeah. as long as they understand what the shareholding is and yeah. what their rights are, etc., okay. then I think they're okay with it. Yeah, you have to be careful that you don't have too many um, because lenders start to get a bit concerned that it might be a collective investment yeah. and could cause issues from the point of view of the FCA. I mean, I, I've no idea. It's 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 hard. There isn't a specific number or a, a sort of red line, or is there? Tell me, when does it become a collective investment scheme? I think it's a bit of a grey area, yeah, I um, but I, I do think that lenders, particularly you know banks, because they're regulated, etc., yeah. they do start to you know get a bit worried themselves. So yeah. their compliance team, you know, start to turn, you know bit of a negative view on things if there are yeah. too many investors in there yeah, yeah but you know i think in general you know three or four partners within a, a business isn't a problem at all we do that all the time it's pretty pretty common and that's actually what i keep it to i mean when i do deals like that it's usually rob and myself okay maybe you call us two parties but the other there's always one other party normally but often they bring their wife into it or you know, one that we're doing at the moment, there's, um, there's a chap and he's doing it with his his wife and his brother-in-law and his sister-in-law. Well, from my point of view, that's one party because in the shareholders agreement, he's sort of making the decisions, even though they're all equity. Um, you know, they've all got an equity share together. Um, but that makes it quite simple because you've really got one decision on that side and one decision on this side. Um, I've, I just find it a lot more, <laughs> if you've got sort of six different um, entities, if you like, 
often they want six different things and um, that can get very complicated to, yeah. to, to, to force a decision. I have yeah. seen it before where it slowed things down. Definitely. That's the problem. Yeah, yeah slow, slowing stuff down. Also where each, you know, if each party has signing requirements. Yeah. Um, some banks ask for all shareholding directors to give a personal guarantee, yeah. which some investors don't want to do. Yeah. So it can become quite complicated then. Yeah. I think you've all got to be you know, singing off the same song sheet, so to speak. Yeah. So what's the big sort of growth area now, Dean? You know, the market slowed down. Um, are you getting as many deals through in terms of development? Because obviously the, the sort of sales have gone a, a little bit soft. Um, People like me, I prefer holding anyway, but some people are still developing, you know, to sell and lots of people are utilising help to buy. How have, you know, how, how do you see things going from here on out in terms of, you know, the deals that are coming to you and, and, and to the market? Well, we're still seeing lots of inquiries. Yeah. We're seeing lots of sites come across our desk. I think that uh, generally speaking, um, developers are in two camps. You know, some are sitting and waiting, and they want to see what happens they with are, the market. There's, there's a yeah. few that I've yeah. spoken to like yeah. that, and then there's quite a number that see it as a great opportunity yeah. because there's less competition. They're in buying the market. stuff cheaper, are they? Um, probably, I would say more more in in this space at the right price rather than cheaper. Um, it was there, all getting. There was a lot of competition, yeah. and I think certainly with permitted development. The, you know that that really drove the price up of, of buildings, office buildings, and there was a lot of competition. And arguably, some people were overpaying for the sites. Um, and now there seems to be you know an element of you know sensibility come into that. But you still got vendors that are aren't quite on the same page. Yes, they're unrealistic in the terms of the bane of my life. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. So yeah. you know, but um, yeah, I mean, generally speaking, you know, everyone's seems to be ploughing ahead. Uh, I think you've just got to be careful about what the product type is. Yeah. Uh, what does that mean? What, what, what's good and what's not? I think at the moment, from a lending perspective, a lot yeah. of lenders aren't keen on properties over a million individual values. Mm, because of stamp um, duty, perhaps? Stamp duty, less of a market to sell to. Gone um, soft. And yeah. I, think, I think some are even focused on sub 600,000 because of the help to buy yeah. sort of bracket. Um, and I think then if you put it at the other end of the scale, um, you've got sort of not first-time buyers market because that's really driven by help to buyers being helped. But the smaller, really, uh, you know, sub 35 square metres, yeah. you know, certainly sub 30 square metres is a bit of a no-no for lenders and even mortgage providers. So there's a lot of... Um, you know, uh, hesitancy to fund large-scale developments where the whole building is, you know, studios or or very, very small one-beds. Yeah. Unless it's in a really strong commuter location where demand is driven by the actual price of the unit rather than the size. Yeah. Uh, I, I think there's definitely still opportunities there. Um, but where people have brought large-scale buildings in secondary towns which don't have the transport links... I think that they may struggle to sell those and that, that, that could be where the issues come. Yeah, that, that is interesting. Um, I suppose, yeah, specification is important. Um, I know most of the, the, the friends that I have that are b developing to sell units are focusing on help to buy. Um, I, I think we've got till 2021 
and it, it could get extended again beyond that. Um, so if you're buying stock now, you can f foreseeably expect to get stuff sold through the help to buy route, I think. Absolutely. Um, and it's a very strong part of the market. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think that you, you've sort of hit the nail on the head. If you're building a quality product and it's in a good location, then it will always sell. I think where people have encountered issues is perhaps where the specification, the finish is not to the standard that's required. And perhaps buyers are getting a little bit more choosy because yeah. there's more stock on the market. Yeah. So I think if, as long as people are building to a good standard, then, you know, again, there'll, there'll definitely be purchases for that. Yeah. Okay, fine. Great. So um, obviously we've got loads of people looking for finance. Um, how do our investors find more out about you and your service? Um, well, we have a website, so people can have a look at that. That's www.oriumfinance.co.uk. Uh, we've also got social media, so we have a LinkedIn page and a Twitter page for the company. So people can go onto there and review the information that we put on there um, and feel free to connect with us. And alternatively, you know, if people just want to have a chat about certain opportunity or how to structure something, we're always, you know, got open ears and they can call the office and, you know, give us a call on the, the landline there, 01908 414 235. Do you want to just repeat that? 01908 414 235. Okay, great. Um, well, have you got anything to add, Dean, before we, we sort of close off? Um, I think generally speaking, you know, I, I think the market is still strong. I think you know, there's lots of lending uh, options out there. You know, I think it's about picking the right lending partner. Um, you know, they are going to be part of your team for the next 12, 18 months at least. So you want to you know, really look at their whole process and who they appoint as professionals, etc. We can obviously help with all of that. Um, but yeah, you know, if, if you need any help, then give us a shout. Dean, it's been really interesting catching up with you. Um, that has been Mark Homer for Mark My Words. <laughs>